0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It is uh, great to be with you all. We, um, I'm Chris Bowen, um, still the new guy. I like being that. Um, I wanted to uh, take a personal privilege as I get my notes out. Uh, this weekend I got invited to join a bunch of other guys who were doing something really crazy. And uh, it might have been the most crazy fun I've had in a long time. Uh, We, uh, as a group, ran from Columbia to Charleston. Um, Which, yeah, laugh, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so many of y'all are there, and some of us are walking uh, with a little hitch in our giddy-up. But it's good, and so um, what we're grateful for as our family, as the community that we have found here, and the relationships that we are are forging with you all, and that is a beautiful thing. And the reason why I say that is because you all are giving my family a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth and the new kingdom, which is really what Jesus was communicating in, in the Sermon on the Mount. As he was beginning his ministry in Matthew, he was talking to these folks who heard been drawn to his teaching, and he was giving them a glimpse of, of heaven as it will be on earth. And he was talking about the practical realities of what that will look like in our lives and the way that we're supposed to live and how the gospel is to animate our lives and, and that we are to reflect the redemptive love of Jesus and rehearse those uh, practices that, that we don't always do all that well, but we have to learn of what it means to be the new covenant community and to reflect fully God's glory. And so in this, he is giving his disciples a prayer. And one of the things that is worth noting is that this prayer, the Lord's prayer, it isn't something that he is teaching them to just say. It's not something they are just to know by heart and to recite by memory in some sort of rote fashion. He, he is teaching them this prayer and its orientation towards God as our Father and in these various petitions so that those would begin to shape the contour and character, character of their heart to bring about that transformation through the power of the gospel we talk about every week. And so this prayer is very, very important for us as followers of Christ. And so we turn our attention this morning to Matthew 6. And Beginning in Matthew uh, 6, 5, we're going to go through the end of the prayer and in verse 15. If you're new here, we've been looking at this sort of step by step every uh, bit of the way uh, to see what Jesus would teach us from his word and how we are to live. And so in Matthew 6, and verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning from his word. Father, we come into your presence. You have assured us that where two or three are gathered, you would be in their midst. And so we pray that your spirit would permeate this place and and begin to inscribe uh, these truths, the truths of your gospel and of your word upon our hearts so that we would be a people who live fully into your glory. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace so that we would have the strength and endurance to do so. And Lord, would we learn what it means to be a people who are in right relationship with you and in right relationship with one another. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. And Ernest Hemingway, who's one of my favorite writers, in one of his short stories entitled The Capital of the World, he's writing about Madrid. And he begins the short story and says, Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of the Air El Liberal, or El Liberal, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And how a squadron of the Guardia Civil had to be called out to dispense, to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisement. The joke is about the ubiquity of the name Paco in Spain. But this story, this illustration, only works because of the underlying longing of many to be forgiven. Whether they are sons or daughters, mothers or fathers, friends or colleagues, we desire forgiveness Because we value relationships. And we know that relationships cannot be mended without forgiveness. In this brief um, summary, this this brief illustration from Hemingway, we see this, this reality that we know that something is not right in the world. That there is not always harmony in our relationships. That we have hurt others and that others... Have hurt us and this is a a reality uh, as fortunate unfortunate as it is that we live with and so in this passage because Jesus knows our hearts and knows the brokenness of our hearts he's beginning through the gospel and its declaration to to apply a healing balm and and this balm is not just for us spiritually but it's, it's for us physically as well because if you've ever been at odds in a broken relationship with someone, you know that the tension of that can, t- can wear on you. It can wear on you in, in a variety of ways, physically and emotionally and mentally. And so here what Jesus is doing is he is coming in and he is speaking to his disciples. And he is saying, we have talked about your need for daily bread and, and wondering where that's going to come and, and how all of that will encompass your life and, and, and a lot of the physical actions you take. But at the same time, he's saying, you also have other needs as well. Your, your need for forgiveness. Not just from the Father, but between one another. Because in the countercultural values of God's kingdom, of, this, of the new kingdom in, in, heaven as it, in heaven as it will be on earth, He's saying that God's people live together in a place where they flourish and where they thrive and where there's shalom and fullness and hope. And the way that that comes is is by removing the obstacles, the hindrances that prevent us from having full relationship with one another. And so he talks about forgiveness. I, I confess to you this morning that as I looked at this passage this week and in the last couple of days, this is a really hard subject. It isn't necessarily hard because of the words. It's hard because of the doing. We, we struggle with receiving forgiveness. We, we have our doubts and our skepticisms about do they really mean it? Do they really, are they really offering me this? And, and will it be held against me? Other times, there's some of us who, who are, are wrestling with something in our life we're saying, I, what I have done is so bad. How I have hurt someone or wronged someone is so detestable and vile. How, how could they ever uh, forgive me? Or, or if you flip that, maybe it's been done to you and you say, I'm holding on to that. And, and, and I'm not sure I can offer that forgiveness the way it needs to be offered. And, and that hurt has become part of your identity. Uh, regardless of where you're at, these... These words are, are, are for you and they're for me, because what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we are a people who practice and rehearse these things. And so as we look at forgiveness this morning, we're going to look at three things. Why do we need it? What is it? And how are we to forgive? Why do we need it? What is it? And how are we to forgive? So first, why do we need it? And that is a really, really good question. Why do we need forgiveness? One of the questions that I, uh, authors that I was reading this week, talks about how it doesn't make sense when it seems that those who forgive in our culture are wimps. If that is the association, that there is some sort of weakness in it, then it doesn't really give us the value that we want. In our culture, in the United States, this author says, we live in an increasingly litigious culture. It hasn't always been that way. We've become such a culture. But once a culture has become litigious, forgiveness starts making less and less sense. We can still hold on to forgiveness on our own, but we are then swimming against the stream We start questioning our commitment to it and often give up. To forgive, we need an environment in which forgiveness is valued and nurtured. The only way we rehearse and learn to practice forgiveness is if we understand the importance of why we do it. And the importance of it is relationships. It's relationships. Those are what is to be most valued. But when we understand why we need it, functionally what this passage is driving us to, in sort of its baseline brass tacks, is this idea of sin. And and depending on your translation, it may say debts, or it may say trespasses. And there's often a lot of discussion that goes on with those. But functionally what it was in Aramaic was a word that Jesus used that talked about being in someone else's debt, in owing them a price or a payment for something that had happened. It was very much a commercial term. And so in this, what Jesus is saying is that all of us are indebted to someone. And all of us have debts that are out. And all of us are in debt to God. And so what we need to understand is this, this reality of sin that we've missed the mark, that we've fallen short of the majesty and holiness of who God is and, and what He has done. And that because of that, we, we, we have a need. In our culture, we don't like to talk about sin. In our, in our home last night, I got in and what I learned about in our home is strong words. Strong words for our children are those things you probably shouldn't say, like hate. It's not a bad word necessarily, it's just a strong word. And in our culture, sin is a strong word that we tend to avoid. I remember I was out with a friend and I had given him a book and it was called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a really good book for couples. And what it talks about is this idea of how we are all fundamentally sinners in need of God's grace. And when we get married, the sin doesn't lessen because we get married. It actually multiplies because now you have two sinners in this relationship. And this guy looked at me and he said, why did you give me that book? And I said, well, it was a really good book. Jen and I really benefited from it. Maybe that says a lot about us. But he said, you know, I took it to my therapist and I gave it to him. And he said, you shouldn't read that book. That's not good for your self-esteem. You see, sin isn't good for our self-esteem. And oftentimes what we try to do is we try to redefine sin. And that's what our culture does. We play the role of the victim. We say, if we get angry, it's because someone else provoked us. That if we have failed, it's because we were tempted. We try to excuse ourselves and blame others for what we have done. We deny our sin and we redefine it so that it's really not all that bad. We use ways to get around this strong word that the Bible uses of sin. Because for some of us, the sin that we've done, those things that we should have done that we didn't do, and those things that we shouldn't have done that we did, tend to overwhelm us with guilt and shame. And in a culture, a litigious society that doesn't see forgiveness, how are we to get over those things? For some of us, those misdeeds, those wrongful actions are, are so grave and significant in our lives that we simply say they're insurmountable. And we just give up. What Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't just give up. But we should turn to the one who is able to offer us forgiveness. We should turn to the Father and we should come to him. And receive mercy and receive grace and receive forgiveness. This is why we need it. Because what the Bible teaches us is that in Genesis 3, through Adam and Eve's first sin, that there was a fracture in creation. That, that, that sin against a holy God brought about a separation between man and God. And ever since we were removed east of Eden, we have been trying to find a way back home. And to get back into his right standing with God. The beauty of the gospel is it doesn't tell us what we need to do to get right. It tells us how God has made us right in Jesus. And so that's what we need to understand about forgiveness. That we need to be in right relationship. And so what is forgiveness? At its core, what forgiveness is, is the eradication of an obstacle that limits or prevents relationships it limits or prevents relationship. To to put it down more simply, it's the generous release of a genuine debt. The generous release of a genuine debt. Debt is one of those things that we don't think is all that good and we shouldn't practice, but it's one of those things that we understand in life. You've taken out a loan, perhaps for a project in, in, in real estate. You've You've taken out a loan for a car. You've taken out a loan for a house. You've, we, we, we do these things. And when we do and we sign the bottom line, what we're saying is that in this transaction that I will promise to pay this back. There is a, a guideline for what we need to do to get out of debt, to, to, to be uh, back in a right account, to true up our account, if you will. And what that means is there's something we owe. And so... If we're unable to owe it and we we cannot pay on our debt, well, there are consequences. And what the Bible teaches us is that there are consequences for sin. In Romans 6, it says, for the wages of sin is death. This misdeed, what we have done, that there is a consequence to it. And so we need this generous release. One of the negative aspects of what forgiveness is, is it's the naming of a wrongdoing. The naming of a wrongdoing. We don't like that very much. We don't want to be told there was something wrong that we did or something that we should have done that we didn't do. I don't like being reminded, hey, did you take the clothes out of the dryer? Because what was the last thing I was thinking about? Taking the clothes out of the dryer. But I remember that someone asked me to do something and I didn't do it. There are a lot of things that we haven't done and there are a lot of things that we should have done. But the other part about forgiveness, the positive part, the, the part that we like, is that, that, that the, the one who is giving the forgiveness is foregoing the rightful claim against us. They are foregoing the rightful claim, that generous release. But in order to really understand forgiveness, in order to be able to forgive, what we have to understand is that through God's grace and forgiveness, while it is free to us, it is completely free to us, it is always costly for God. It is always costly for God. No one who is seriously wrong can just forgive the perpetrator. When you forgive, it means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness is costly. And what we understand about forgiveness is that the way that God forgives us, the way that God forgives sinners is not by just saying, I'll write that one off. You just go do whatever you want to do and I'll take care of this. No, that would make him unjust and it would be a violation of his character. So there has to be an accounting for those missteps and misdeeds and those treasonous acts that we have committed against Him. In Scripture, over 125 times this aspect of forgiveness comes into play in the Bible. And in every instance, the imagery of a sacrifice being owed to God is used. And in this, what we find is that through that, God does a variety of things in forgiveness. In Romans 4.8, which is citing Psalm 32, 1 and 2, God it tells us that God does not reckon or count our sins against us. We incur a debt, but God puts nothing in the debit column of our account. We owe, but we don't have to pay. But how is it that that happens? The debt still has to be paid. And that is where the cross comes into play where Jesus is is telling these folks of the the realities of the new covenant, what he is anticipating is that when he will give up his life and his body will be broken and his blood will be shed to establish establish those realities of the new covenant, and that he is perfectly living out all the demands of God's law in a way that we can't, and that though we've tried or haven't tried, we haven't been able to live up to that. If you just distilled down God's law into loving God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, think about how many times you haven't done just those two things. We fall short. And what it tells us is that Jesus, through what he has done, that gets credited to our account, that our debts are gone, and we get his righteousness. That we have been made right in Jesus. And that because of him there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. tells us that all those who were led astray, each to his own way, the Lord has laid the iniquity of them on him. So he doesn't count it to our account because of Jesus. That we get grace, that we get mercy, that we get those things by grace and through faith. And that he takes all the shame. And what it tells us through other parts of the scriptures is that God covers over our sin. Psalm thirty-two one and Romans four seven, it says, though we have sinned in plain sight of all, God hides our sin and covers the impenetrable, and covers them with impenetrable obscurity. Though we've committed them, they're nowhere to be found. The scriptures tell us that God puts our wrongdoings behind his back. And that when he looks at us, though we have wronged, he no longer sees those wrongs and they don't define us any longer. He sees us differently. It tells us in Psalm 103.12 that God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Our transgressions seem permanently stuck to us. We walk around and we think about those things that we have done. The the broken relationship, the divorce, the debt, the addiction, the abuse, the abortion, and all of those things and, and so many more. The way that we yelled at our kids when our temper was short and they were acting very lively I know nothing about that. I just have heard things. But when we have acted that way, um, what he tells us is that those things don't define us. They're they're not in our column anymore. That they have been removed. and, And he is removing them as far as the east is from the west. And he is gently separating them from us so that they won't harm us. It tells us that He blots out our sin. He blots out our sin. And and though it was like scarlet, it has become white as snow. Isaiah 43, 25. It's like a blot of, 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 of ink that's been spilled, but someone comes along and is able to clean it up. God's grace does this. God sweeps away our sin like a mist, Isaiah forty two twenty two. But the, the one of the many, many examples of God's redemption and these images that he gives to stir our minds about what he's doing is the one that I simply can't wrap my mind around. It's the miracle of miracles. It tells us that a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in all his being, wisdom, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. He knows all things from the beginning to the end, who was there before time began, who has laid the foundations of the earth and knows all those things that we have done in secret. It tells us that he remembers our sins no more. Isaiah 43:25, Jeremiah 31:34, Hebrews 8:12 and again in Hebrews 10:17. I want you to think about that for a second. It tells us that God, because of what Jesus has done for us, in satisfying the debt of our sin, looks at us and remembers our sins no more. What Jesus is telling us in a lot of ways through this, is He is saying, borrowing a line from the Avitt Brothers, "I wish you could see yourself as beautiful as I see you." I wish you could see yourself as lovely as I see you. And for many of us, what we have to do is start speaking words of grace to ourselves. Because it isn't just that we've forgiven, it's that we don't know how to forgive ourselves. And so we define our reality by these things. We, 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 are, we cling to a sin that we say Jesus could never have forgiven, that his death wasn't enough. But no, friends, we need to believe that Jesus is enough. If Christianity is about anything, it's about forgiveness. Christianity is not about getting better. It's not about tips and techniques to help you yell at your children less, gain financial security, or become more fulfilled in life. And it's not about feeling better or or doing better. It's about being forgiven and being restored in relationship with God our Father and with one another. It is nothing more and it's nothing less than a lifetime of living out the implications of our redemptions, of the fact that God knows all our failures, all our fears, all our misdeeds, all those escapades in college and in high school and even up till today. And the fact that God knows all those things, he removes our doubt and covers our shame and he does not count our sins against us because he has forgiven us through what Jesus has done on the cross. And all that we have embraced and received in, in, in the ways that we have been hurt and sinned against by others, and the ways that we have hurt others and sinned against them, Jesus absorbs all the punishment and shame for those things that we have dished out and those things that we have received. And yet he is still with us and loves us. And he went to the cross knowing these things. And for the joy set before him, he endured the shame, our shame, so that we would have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God received and adopted into his family. You see, the only person who is able to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is the person who is able to say, with confidence, Father. It's the person who's been restored in relationship. Christianity is about forgiveness. and It is about grace and it's about mercy and it's about Jesus and it's about the cross. Our task is to believe that forgiveness and grace and mercy and Jesus and the cross are enough. That we don't have to add something to it. That we don't say, Jesus, all that stuff, let, let me go try a little more. No, he says, I died for you, that I love you. One of the beautiful realities that I found so many men who who struggle with this identity and and their father being proud of them. It tells us in Luke 3 and Matthew 3 that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and, and those who were there heard a voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because of what Jesus has done, God looks at you he has pride in you and he cares for you and he moves towards you with a reckless abandonment like the father in luke 15 who when his son comes home he risks the social shame of of a of a prominent patriarch in a community and he pulls up his skirts and he runs to embrace his child you see that's what we need to know and that's what we need in forgiveness the question when we look at this passage is all right well how are we supposed to forgive? How are we supposed to give this to others? Well, we can't give away what we do not possess. We can't give away what we do not possess. And the constant reality of our lives is going to be rehearsing, understanding what it means to be forgiven. And in this simple prayer that we should practice on a daily basis, is, isn't, it isn't that we pray this prayer in order to be justified. We pray this prayer to remind ourselves of the gospel. Martin Luther said, I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it every day. And so we ask for forgiveness, knowing that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus, and that we are truly forgiven and that our sins have been atoned for on the cross. But we come to him in forgiveness, knowing in shaping the contours of our heart, that we have a Father who loves to hear from us. And it doesn't matter how bad we've messed up or how small the thing is, He runs to us, absorbing the sin and shame. And so what we need to remind ourselves of in this passage is that we have a God who forgives. And so that because we have a God who forgives, we should forgive as He forgives. We should forgive as he forgives. So that means that relationship that you have, where you say, "That scoundrel. I can't believe how they did me wrong. Or the way you look at your spouse and say, you know, I love them, but they do this thing that irritates the heck out of me. And I just can't stand it. This bitterness creeps in, and it, and it really hinders you from having shalom and, and, and wholeness and harmony in that relationship. What we need to do is we need to forgive as God has forgiven us. That He has removed those sins as far as the East is from the West, and we bear them no more. He does not credit them to our account, that He doesn't look at us, but He selectively forgets them. See, one of the things that Jen and I began practicing pretty early on was we wouldn't say, I'm sorry. Lord knows Jen doesn't need me to tell her that I'm sorry. She knows it. I don't mean that in the sense of of an apology. I'm just not that very good of a human. Um, What she needs to know is that I'm forgiven. Because to say I'm sorry in some ways is a passive transaction. But if I come to her and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? then we are practicing what this passage is talking about, that she has to there in turn, turn to me and say, yes, I forgive you. So to forgive is to remove these things. There was an illustration that I've used before, but not with you guys. So you get the, the first shot at hearing it. There was a married couple who were having their own marital strife. They were pretty new in this enterprise and relationship of marriage, but they were just at each other's throats. And so one party came to the other and said, i got a great idea. For the next month, we're going to set up a can with his and hers. And every time you offend me, you write it down on a note card and you drop it in there at the end of the month. We'll go in and we'll look at the ways we've offended each other and we'll, we'll figure out how we can do this better. We can make this marriage work. So one spouse goes, or, or one spouse goes to their can at the end of the month, and they start reading. You, you know, you didn't put your clothes up, and you, you know, you, you drank all the milk and put the carton back in the refrigerator, and you overdrew our account, and you know, you put that ding on the car, and you, know, you weren't very kind to me when you came home that one day, and you didn't remind me that you loved me, and, and this person just read all these things, and we're taking them to heart. The other goes there. There can, with all the misdeeds they've done, and they open up all those note cards, and all it said was, I love you, I forgive you. I love you, I forgive you. I love you, I forgive you. You see, they were not counting the wrongs against them. They were choosing not to remember them. And that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. And that he is settling our debt through the sacrifice of his life and through his death but through his resurrection, we have confidence that it is sure and those promises are applied to our account. So, Christian, do you believe this? That Jesus is truly enough? That his death satisfied the debt that you owe? Friend, if you're here for the first time and you've never heard the gospel, you say, This is incredible, but you don't know what I've done. I would encourage you to come. And, and, and encounter the beauty and redemption that we have in Jesus. That Pacos all over Madrid went to a father because the offer of forgiveness was there. But here in the gospel, what we find is the offer of forgiveness. And we see no clearer of a picture than it, of it than Jesus on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taken on our account. And in his dying words, he said, it is finished. It is accomplished. So for all those who are found in Jesus, they have been restored and their debt has been paid. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, would we live into the realities of these new kingdoms? Would we be people of grace and mercy and forgiveness and the cross and Jesus and believe that, that it's enough and that we would go out? Reflecting these redemptive realities. That we would rehearse these things amongst one another. So that we would be the embodiment of his grace. And the forgiveness that he offers us in the gospel. Let us pray. A great God and King, we come before you. This morning, Lord, not just hoping that these things are true. But knowing that these things are true. Because you have told them to us. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, for the one struggling. Lord, the one who just needs a gentle reminder, Lord, that you would write the truth of your gospel on our heart. Lord, that we would know the fullness and redemption that we have in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.